I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1. My Bible automatically goes to Hebrews 11. We want to start in Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. I want to talk to you about the name of Jesus. Beginning in verse 1, it says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, different times in different ways, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, in other words, things are different, hath in these last days spoken to us by son. Uh, King James says his, but it's added by the translators. Has in these last days spoken to us by son. In other words, first thing, I, I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, but whoever wrote it was inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us that, um, uh, that there's a whole new day compared to the Old Testament versus the New. In the Old Testament, there were prophets. There were different people that would uh, get messages from God in in a variety of ways. Some people would act them out. Some people would speak them out and and so forth. And at different times and in different manners, uh, God would deliver messages to the people, to his people Israel, for the purpose of revealing himself, manifesting himself, uh, bringing revelation in some way or some form. But it says, Paul is saying, first and foremost, it's different now because everything you're ever going to know about God, you're going to know through Jesus. Remember Jesus on the last night that he was with his disciples said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is the manifested reality of God himself. Now, the reason that's important is this. The prophets would have the Holy Ghost come upon them at different times and and specific times for specific purposes to deliver certain messages that God wanted to tell or deliver to the people. But Jesus lived God Prophets didn't live God. Prophets weren't anointed all the time. They couldn't just speak for God any time that they wanted to. Jesus lived God because he was God. Now that's, uh, uh, that's going to be kind of a foundation for, uh, for the other things that, uh, that the Bible is going to tell us about who we are and what belongs to us. So back again to, these, to verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So it tells us Jesus position before the worlds were formed and jesus was literally the creative agent that made the earth and the worlds around us who verse 3 being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things in the universe by the word of his power notice that's not the power of his word we think of the power of his word but it's the other way around it's the word of his power When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, it tells us about Jesus in two two different time periods. It tells us about Jesus before the worlds were. It tells us about the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the, the creation, certainly before he came to the earth. And then it tells us about the, the, uh, the, the inheritance that he obtained following his resurrection. Those are not the same thing. Please understand that there was a glory. Jesus speaks of the glory. He prayed in John chapter 17. He said, Father, give me back the glory that I had with you before the worlds were. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, why don't don't you turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We'll read that along with these. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think like Jesus thought. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. Have the same motive that Jesus has, had and has. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, um, that's a bad translation, but it's understandable why it's a bad translation. It's tough words. Literally what it's saying is, and and you may have heard this preached the other way around, the the complete opposite of what I'm going to tell you. You may have heard it preached that way. I have too. But anyway, when it says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, what that literally means is being the very glory and the essence of the Godhead before the worlds began, he didn't hang on to that. See, I've heard it preached and and, uh, taught for many years that we should have the same attitude of Jesus and recognize that we're equal with God. Well, in some ways we are because we're united with God through Christ Jesus. But I don't know about you, I'm not a creator of a universe. And so that makes it kind of difficult for me to understand. What it's saying is very simply this, Jesus was equal with God. Now, let me say right up front, and let me take a little side journey here. There are some things about the Godhead that, that don't make sense to me. If God and Jesus were both eternal, there was no beginning, there is no end to them, how can one be the Father and one be the Son? Now, I understand I'm thinking linearly, but Father and Son means different generations, doesn't it? I don't understand how that works. But that's what the Bible says, so I accept it to be true. But the Bible tells us that God and, and God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are all co-equal and co-eternal. Yet there's a, there's a, I hate to use this term, but there's a pecking order. Jesus, the Bible says, lays down his achievements and his crowns at the Father's feet. That shows that Jesus recognizes that the Father is greater than himself. Well, how can they be co-equal and co-eternal if one is greater than the other? See, there's things I don't understand. Thank God we don't have to understand everything to accept them to be true because the Bible says so. So it's saying that God, or Jesus rather, was equal with God, present with him before the beginning, whatever the beginning was that God created the heavens and the earth. He's been here forever. But there came a point in time where Jesus, who recognized that it was God's plan, it was part of the the thing that they all discussed in the beginning, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, they came up with the plan of redemption. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. That does not mean the creation, that does not mean the, uh, the, the Adam and Eve world. That means the beginning of the worlds. Before, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before anything happened, before anything changed, Jesus was slain before the foundations. In other words, it was always God's plan, eternally God's plan for there to be a redeemer for you and me. Think about that. Before God ever made anything, he made a plan for you. Uh, To me, that's pretty well the best evidence of thinking ahead that I can come up with. 
Everything about whatever God created, he had you in mind and he, ha- he knew that you would need a redeemer, which means he knew you would fall into sin, man would fall into sin, and that without a redeemer, you would be hopelessly lost. His creation, whatever it was he planned for you and me, would be eternally separated from him. So you needed a redeemer. So Jesus was that redeemer from before the creation. So Jesus knew his purpose from whatever the beginning was. Therefore, Jesus being the creator of the world. Please notice again in in Hebrews chapter 1, or let me remind you in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the one that created the worlds. Paul tells us the same thing writing to the Galatians and again to the Romans. He says it was by Jesus, by him were all things created. And nothing was created that wasn't by him. So Jesus is the creator of the worlds. He's the creator of the universe. He's the active agent, the means whereby everything was created. Well, I don't know how much greater you can get than the creator of the universe. I mean, what terms do we use that that identify greater power and greater position than the creator of the universe? Universe is our only frame of reference. Outside of the universe, what is there? If there is anything, I don't know it. Do you? So Jesus, as the creator of the universe, certainly recognizes his equality with God in that positional aspect. But here it says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, what that literally means is, he didn't take being equal with God as something to hold fast to. He knew from the beginning that he was going to be the redeemer and going to have to lay aside that heavenly power and glory, that eternal heavenly power and glory, in order to fulfill God, his father's purpose. So that's what that means. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, be willing to set yourself down. Now, whatever position you and I attain, whatever place that we uh, achieve, whether it's in the minds of others or in our own minds, which is where a lot of people seem to live. Whatever you've got, whatever you attain to, whatever you ever will have is not what Jesus set down. Doesn't even compare. So the point is, if Jesus was willing to do it, to become a, come to the earth in the form of a servant, we should be willing to set ourselves down to be servants too. That's what these verses are talking about. Let me start again in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he didn't hold fast to it. He made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Wherefore for this purpose. For this reason. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to notice something, folks. The Bible tells you that Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, got a greater name than he had before he came to the earth. Look with me over to Ephesians chapter 1.
Here's Paul's prayer for the church, beginning in verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul heard something about them that caused him to pray and, and pray earnestly and pray often for these believers. What did he pray? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Well, don't they already know him? Aren't they already saved? He's talking about growing in the knowledge of God. Must be more too, just being born again. The eyes of your understanding, one translation says the eyes of your spirit, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. As a child of God or as a saint of God, you have an inheritance. Thirdly, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. He's going to describe the power that he wants you to know about. The power that God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above. Everybody say far above. Not a little bit above. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Here's that name. That Jesus was given that he didn't have before he came to the earth. Verse 22. Why did he do this? Why did he give him this name? And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In other words the Bible tells us very simply or infers very simply. Well it's more than an inference. It's It's a declaration. It's a statement of fact. But from these statements of fact we can imagine or infer. That the glory that Jesus had with the Father from the beginning of the worlds, from the creation of the universe, before the universe was created, the glory and the power that was his that enabled him to have the creative power necessary to bring the universe into existence. When Jesus was raised from the dead, when he by himself, by his sacrifice, by his death, burial, and resurrection, had purged sins, made a price, paid the price for sins, for all of mankind, God gave him a different name, a better name, a more powerful name that caused every being in heaven, hell, and earth to be under him. In other words, Jesus has greater glory now than he had when he created the worlds. Now, I'm not sure what to think about that just have to be honest because i get to a certain place and my mind goes tilt i mean if if i don't have anything to do sometimes it's an interesting uh practice to try to think these things through but i either get so twisted up that i don't think anything or i come to a place where it's like uh, wait a minute this is just too far beyond me Now, how did this happen? No, turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I, I hope these, uh, I hope, well, I hope I can get where I want to go this morning. Here it's talking about the, the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, let's start in verse 8 so we get the context. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. In other words, he's saying, don't let anybody talk you out of what belongs to you. 
Don't let anybody's fancy talk or their reasoning or their arguments talk you out of what belongs to you in Christ Jesus. For in him, verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in bodily form. For in Christ Jesus, and you're in Christ Jesus too, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of heaven's power, all the fullness of heaven's mercy, all the fullness of heaven's goodness, in bodily form in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God manifested to the world. And you are complete in him. The word complete literally means filled up to the full. You are filled up to the full in him. The picture is that there's not room for one other thing. Boy, it'd help us if we start thinking like that, wouldn't it? And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Talking about evil spirits and dominions. In whom you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, born again, being born again, the Old Testament uh, type of circumcision is fulfilled in being born again. You've been separated unto God. You are his people. Buried with him in baptism, wherein you also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him. In other words, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised you from the dead. When God raised Jesus from... Now, that's not talking about raising from physical death. It's talking about being raised from spiritual death. I don't know about you, but I wasn't raised from the dead physically when Jesus was resurrected. Were you? Of course not. So it can't be talking about physical death. It's got to be talking about spiritual death. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive together... With him, with Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. In other words, there is no record of anything against you for eternity. So many times people are worried about their past. You don't have one if you're in Christ. But you do have a, a glorious future. Yeah, but, but Pastor Mike, I've done things that are wrong and, and that'll, that'll hold me back with, with God. No, not if the Bible's true. Yeah, but I just can't forget what I did. Well, that's your problem. That doesn't mean God can't. And with a little help from the Word, putting the Word in practice, you can forget too. If you're willing to turn loose. Verse 15 and having spoiled here's jesus being raised from the dead here's the picture of jesus being raised from the dead and having spoiled that's past tense no work left to do and having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing gaining the victory over them in it in his resurrection now what does that mean well open show you know the the history of these things uh, in, in times past and in Paul's day, when one uh, country or king would go out and defeat another country's armies, they would strip the king and strip the armies and take away all their stuff and, and uh, load it up on wagons and stuff and then parade back through their hometown, their, um, uh, the capital of, the, of their country, 
and they would parade the king, mostly usually naked in some humiliating fashion. They would parade the king and his uh, and his armies and all this that, that that once may have posed a great threat or, or or threatened to do great harm to the country and to the people and so forth. They would bring them down through town and show how powerless and weak and helpless they were because of the great victory that was won. Well, that's what the Bible says Jesus did with the devil and evil spirits. It says Jesus stripped them. It says Jesus triumphed them over them and made an open show of them. But now the open show is not for some city that was paraded as, you know, people used to parade uh, armies through and stuff like that. The open show is for all eternity. One pastor friend, minister friend of mine, used to be a pastor, he's not anymore. But one minister friend of mine says that God defeated the devil and paraded him through downtown eternity. And that's really pretty accurate. It's very accurate. Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to Luke chapter 11. We see what Paul says about these things, and we come at it from a natural point of view. What can we believe? What can we accept? What can we take hold of? And, and, and so forth. And uh, let me go a little bit further and say, if we were, um, I don't want to say able because we are able. If we were really willing to accept everything the Bible says, we would be superhuman in our exploits. We would be giants. We would literally be doing the works of Jesus. There's one and only one thing that stops us from it, and it's not a lack of power. The one and only one thing that stops us from us is our lack of willingness to accept the reality of the truth. In other words, the problem's in our heads. The problem is completely in our heads. Notice what Jesus said, knowing that he was talking about what his work would do. In Luke chapter 11, let me set it up for you. Jesus has cast out devils and the religious leaders, you know, religious people that always have an answer for everything. The religious, the religious people came by and they said, well, Jesus did cast the devil out of this person, but he used the power of the devil to do it. And Jesus talks about if, if Satan casts out Satan, how can his house stand? His house will fall if he, well, let me read it. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 17, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I cast out, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus has a plan for other people doing his work. Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come unto you. So he's talking about setting people free from the power of the devil, right? Now Jesus is going to give an example that they can relate to that he knows represents him and the work that he was sent to the earth to accomplish. Verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when someone stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted and divideth the spoils. Jesus is talking about what he's going to do to the devil. This is Jesus explaining 
where he spoiled principalities and powers, where we know now past tense. It would have been future tense from the time Jesus spoke these words. But we know past tense that Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them, triumphing over them in his resurrection. Now, since Jesus knows that that's what he's talking talking about and referring to, let's pay particular attention to what he said about what he would do. I mean, Jesus has got to have a smirk on his face here. When he says these words, he's got to have a smirk on his face because he knows you don't know anything about what I'm saying other than just a general, here's how it works. But I know that this is how it works. This is how it will work when I strip the devil of all of his power once and for all and pay the price for death, the death death that holds mankind in bondage. So notice what he says. He says, when a strong man, armed, 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 talking about the devil, keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger one than he comes along, in other words, there's only one thing that can overcome the power of the devil, and that's a stronger power. That's what Jesus is saying. When a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor. Now, this word armor is the same word. It's only translated twice. Actually, uh, what we know of is, is the translation whole armor is, uh, are two words together. It's a phrase together, and it means all his armor. It's the phrase that, uh, that's translated over in Galatians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. In other words, it's saying this is all he had. The stronger one than him comes along and takes away his armor. Does away with everything that armor was supposed to provide for the devil. Notice it says it was in this armor that he trusted. Now the word trusted is interesting to me. Because it literally means to convince. Or to persuade. In other words, the implication is not just, okay, he was persuaded in his own power. It says to me that the devil's armor, which is used for defensive purposes, which is used for protection, is the only thing that he had to persuade with or convince with. I don't know of any armor the devil has ever had other than deception. Because he's been a rebel holder of authority from the time that Adam and Eve delivered it to him in the Garden of Eden. So what armor does the devil have other than deception? Because even under the old covenant, you could overcome some of the devil's power by operating under the covenant of God. But that covenant was based on knowing who you're in covenant with and what that covenant means. It's based on knowledge. So knowledge is the only thing that can ever overcome deception. And even under the old covenant... People could live out from under to a certain degree, maybe not completely, but to a certain degree, they could live out from under the devil's power. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take away the one and only one thing he can hide behind, and that's deception. And that's where his trust is in. That's what he uses to persuade. That reminds me over in uh, Galatians chapter 6 where Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God. He said, uh, stand against the, the, the wiles of the devil. He talks about putting on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles there is an interesting word because it literally means traveling over like a road. It means put on the whole armor of God that you can stand against the devil in the one and only one road he travels. 
Well, what's the one and only one road he travels? Deception. In other words, if you find him out, if the light of God's word ever shows up on who the devil is and what he's doing, you can overcome him by just taking the truth of God's word and standing on that instead. That's why the Bible talks about the renewing of the mind being so important. It's the renewing of the mind. He's talking about to the Christian. Now, certainly salvation is the important thing to the world. It's the issue for the world. Because without salvation, we're spiritually dead. But once we're made alive in Christ Jesus through accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, there's still a work to do for the believer. That work primarily is the renewing of the mind. It's the gathering and the applying of spiritual truth to overcome the way of thinking that the world has taught us. The world which is controlled by Satan and his cohorts. So that's why the renewing of the mind is such an important issue. Because without knowledge the devil can deceive you. Without knowledge that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The devil can deceive you into thinking the sickness is just a part of life. And sometimes might even be used by God. To teach you something or for whatever purpose they come up with. That's not what the Bible says. So once you expose the truth of God's word on that deception... You're not open to being taken in by sickness and disease in the same way that you were. Now, you may still have to develop your faith so that you can take hold of what the Bible says belongs to you. But at least you found out what belongs to you. Are you out there? So here's Jesus talking about it. And he said, here's the way that it's going to work. A stronger one than the devil. A stronger one than spiritual death. A stronger one than sin and bondage. Is going to strip the devil of all of his power. He's going to strip him of his ability to deceive if you'll accept the truth. And he's going to spoil all his goods. In other words, unlock every door that the devil tried to close or had closed on mankind. What doors did he close? Well, he closed the doors to life. He closed the doors to health. He closed the doors to prosperity. Those are the things that the Bible says Christ has redeemed us from. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law are the areas of life that the devil has locked mankind away from. How did he do that? Well, first he took the power or was given the power by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But then he deceived you or deceived mankind into thinking that there was no way back. And that's why God appeared to Abraham to fix that. Now, with that in mind, I want you to notice something else about this. If we talk about the name of Jesus being greater than it ever was before. And, and um, well, I don't, yeah, I do. Turn with me over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, I want you to see something about this. While you're turning over there, let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, Jesus also, himself took likewise, took part of the same, that through death, spiritual death, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. So we've got another reference where Jesus is saying, the strong man will overcome, a stronger one will overcome the strong man and strip him of his armor. And take away his goods. Take away everything he had. Verse 15 goes on to say. Jesus destroyed death. 
him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The word destroy here in one translation is, uh, is translated paralyze. It literally means to neutralize or to make ineffective. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now we think of fear of death as being afraid of something like you'd be afraid of a snake or a spider or something like that. But fear of death just simply means, in its, in its simplest form, just simply means without any hope, without any reason to hope for things being different. In other words, the fear of death is a lack of knowledge. It's not an emotion. It's not a, it's not a, a feeling of fright. It's a lack of knowledge of any hope or any, any, uh, anything to be different than it is now. It's a lack of knowledge. And so Jesus delivered them by destroying the devil, making him ineffective, abolishing his power, stripping of him of his power. Jesus delivered them who through lack of knowledge and no hope were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But it's the knowledge that brought them out of bondage. It's the knowledge of Jesus that brought you out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Without the knowledge of Jesus, you couldn't have accepted him as your Lord and Savior. So it's knowledge that brings you to the place where you can act on it and receive of everything God has done for you, right? And here's, here's what I want you to see. In John chapter, six, uh, John chapter 17, the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John um, are Jesus, is uh, a record, John's record of Jesus last night with the disciples. Knowing he's going to the cross, knowing he's about to be betrayed in just a, a short time, a matter of hours perhaps. And, uh, and so he tells them things. And the biggest thing that he tells them is what it's going to be like after he's gone. And one of the major components of that is he talks to them about the use of his name. He talks to them about the use of his name. Now Jesus understands some things about his name even though he has not been yet given that greater name. He talks about some things here. About his glory. For example in. Uh, um, oh where is it. Look at John chapter 17 verse 5. Here's part of his prayer. Jesus prays. And now O father glorify thou me with thine own self. With the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That's what Hebrew, or what Philippians chapter 2 is talking about, the glory that Jesus laid aside. He emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. Now Jesus is saying, give it back to me. So here's the question. If Jesus is on the earth without the glory that he had before the worlds, the worlds were created, what's he operating under? He's operating under enough to where even the religious leader, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3 comes to him and says, man, we know you've got to be with God. Nobody can do these works and these signs and these miracles that you're doing except God be with him. We know that the miracles show us that God is with you. So what's the glory Jesus is operating under? It's not what he had in heaven. That's why the Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and was made in fashion as a man. In other words, Jesus had no more. Please understand this. I know it's going to be hard to accept, but just hear me out. Jesus had no more glory here on the earth than what was available for a mankind operating righteously under the law. Now, there had never been an, uh, an Old Testament man that operated righteously, meaning without sin, under the law. 
Righteousness could be imputed to people under the law, which means the same effect, the net effect of being without sin was still available, but nobody had operated the way that Jesus had. But that was the glory that Jesus was operating while he was here on the earth. He was operating with the glory of a sinless man under a covenant with God. And look at what he did. Now I want to bring you to another point. What are you and I supposed to operate under? Some might say, well, we, we should operate as forgiven men and women under, under the, the new covenant. Well, what do you mean by forgiven? See, the church uses the word forgiven so much that it's like sin is just kind of pushed over into the corner. God doesn't look at it, but it's still there. That's not what the Bible says redemption did for you. The Bible says redemption did away with your sin once and for all as if it had never occurred. Therefore, the child of God is as a sinless man or woman as, is, as if someone has never sinned from the time that they were born into the earth, born into a world of sin, but sin had no effect upon them. A sinless man or a woman with a covenant with God. Now the question is, do we have the same covenant that Jesus had? Now, the Bible says in Hebrews 8, 6, that we have a better covenant established upon better promises. So the idea that Jesus gives in John chapter 14, that the, the works that I do shall you do also, should be something that we readily understand. It should be something that we don't even argue about. But that's what the argument in the church world is about. Well, what about these gifts of the Spirit? What about the power of God? Does it work the same that it did then? Well, it must not because we don't have anybody healed in our church, some will say. Thank God that's not the case for us. And so people try to explain away. Well, I guess these things have passed away because God's not doing the same thing that he used to be doing. No, actually, he doesn't have people that are willing to step out on it like he used to. Why? Because of the devil's deception. Because they haven't accepted the truth. They've accepted the lie instead of the truth. And folks, that's as far as it goes. I mean, it would be nice to say, well, if we just learn enough about the Bible and then God pours out his power, then we should do the same works. But God's already poured out his power. The issue is one and only one thing. And that is, will we accept the truth about what the Bible says concerning who we are? So he says, now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, notice in John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus goes further and he says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Can I ask you a question? How did Jesus manifest the name of his father? We know that the Bible tells us to manifest or glorify the name of Jesus, right? That's our work here on the earth. Jesus expects us to glorify his name on the earth, and that's part of doing the works of Jesus and all the other stuff that many people will say has passed away and done away with and doesn't count anymore, right? Well, if we want to know how to glorify the name of Jesus, maybe we ought to use Jesus as an example. Because Jesus says, I have manifested or glorified, I've shown the world your name. Can anybody show me how Jesus manifested the name of the Father? 
Do you see Jesus standing before Lazarus' tomb saying, In the name of the Father, come forth. Do you see him laying hands on the sick and saying, In the name of the Father, be healed. How did Jesus manifest the name of the Father? It certainly doesn't seem to be the way that the church tries to manifest the name of Jesus today. Does it? It looks to me like most of the church world is trying to use the name of Jesus as kind of a magic charm. Got to make sure you say it at the end of your prayer. Right before you say amen, let God know you're done. Some people might be surprised to find out those are two separate things. In the name of Jesus, amen. So many times we think, it looks to me, that the church world thinks that the name of Jesus is the part that gets God to really take, take a, sit up and listen. Take notice. And unless you say in the name of Jesus, it won't work. Well, if that's the way that it works, then why don't we see Jesus saying in the name of the Father? In anything and everything that he did. We don't, do we? Then how did he manifest the name of the Father? Well, let's see what he did. Let's think it through. Jesus would tell his disciples that the Father sent him. He would tell not only his disciples, but others on occasions. He said, I and the Father are one. My Father showeth me what to do. I only do his will. He told his disciples, the words that I speak unto you, they're of the Father. The works that I'm doing, I'm not the one doing them. It's not my power. The, the, the source of the things that are done, the origin of the power is not of me. It's of my Father. So in other words, Jesus gave his Father credit for everything that he did. But he just lived like who he was. Would you turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, I guess the context that we want to set up is in verse 13. We referred to it a few minutes ago. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Verse 14, here's why he did it. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus' redemption was for the world, not just for the Jews. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now notice he mentions two things. He mentions the blessing of Abraham and the promise of the Spirit. Why is, why does he mention both things? Because the blessing of Abraham has no spiritual context. It has no heaven attached to it. It has no eternity related to it. You talk to the Jews, they're real fuzzy on heaven. You know why? Because none of the Old Testament promises really talked about heaven. The Old Testament promises that God made to Abraham were promises here on the earth. You know why the Jews have such a confidence in their ability to make money? Because God's promise was here on the earth. There's no heaven in Judaism. God didn't talk to Abraham about heaven. God talked to Abraham about, here's what I'll do for you here on the earth. I'll give you land. I'll make you rich. I'll take care of you. I'll multiply your seed. He talked about earthly blessings. So, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? For two purposes. Number one, so that we'd have the earthly blessings of Abraham. Health, prosperity, peace, well-being in every area. And secondly, that we'd receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, that's the eternal part. Now, don't get me wrong. Healing, prosperity, earthly blessings all have a spiritual origin. But the Jews don't know anything about that spiritual origin. The only thing they know about it is God said he'd be with us, so here's how it works. They don't think it through. They don't sit, sit by and, and split the hairs over things like we do and talk about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross. Certainly they don't believe in Jesus as being the Messiah. They don't try to go back to the root of the, the payment for sin and death because sin and death is not an issue for them. Their issue is not life, spiritual life. Their issue is earthly blessing. I hate to make a generalization here, but of the Jews that I've known, they are the, the, the most spiritually dense people of anybody I've ever known. Now, maybe that's just my own personal experience. Maybe, that, maybe I, I can't speak for everybody. I don't know. But that is my experience. No spirituality to them whatsoever. Why? Because all they know is earthly blessing. And that works pretty well for them. So you start talking to them about heaven, they look at you sideways. When Jesus started talking about my father in heaven, they're thinking, well, what's that about? Jesus said, I'm going, I came from the father and I'm going back to the father. Only thing they wanted to do is stone him for trying to make himself equal with God. They weren't saying, hey, we want to go too. You mean there's a heaven? You mean there's some way to get to heaven? You mean we're not already in? None of those questions were asked. None of those considerations were, were even, were even uh, postulated. I don't think I've ever used that word before. Nobody even thought in those terms. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and said, Good master, we know that you're sent from God because nobody can do these miracles except you, uh, except that you're doing, except God be with him. Jesus said, You must be born again. He talks to him about spiritual things. What does Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, rulers of the synagogue, spiritual leaders... What does he say? He says, how in the world can that happen? What are you talking about? And Jesus basically says, you know nothing about spiritual things. But unless a man is born of of water, born of the flesh, and of the spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. That's the point where Nicodemus leaves. Because Jesus is talking about things he has no clue about. So Christ redeems you from the curse of law so that you'd have not only spiritual life, which is the most important thing, the promise of the Spirit through faith, but also that you'd have the earthly blessings that he promised Abraham. Do you see the context? Now he talks about uh, a lot of things regarding Jesus' death and and, uh, the covenant and the mediator and the law and so forth. Notice it says, um, well, let's pick up in verse 25. Verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's where the Jews have tripped up and stumbled. They haven't come to understand that the law of Moses, which they made their God, was just a schoolmaster. It was just a guidepost to point to Jesus. And at that point, the schoolmaster was to be discarded and Jesus was to be held fast to. 
Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Paul is telling the, the, uh, the Gentiles as well as the Jews in Galatia, he's saying the law isn't in effect anymore. In other words, the law is not your covenant with God. People have gotten upset over, over, well, from time to time, people get upset when I say the Jews are without covenant toward God. Because some people have got this idea that God loves Israel. Oh, God loves Israel. Oh, God loves Israel, 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 Israel. Well, God loves Abraham. And Israel is the descendants of Abraham. And so God has made certain promises toward the end to Israel for the sake of Abraham. The Bible says so. It says for the sake of Abraham. But you know who God loves? Jesus said God loves the ones that have accepted him. Thank you for your support. Now, I'm not against Israel. But that doesn't mean everything Israel does is right. Doesn't mean everything Israel does is anointed of God and God stands behind them and says, yes, you're my guys. No, you're his guys. Those that are in Christ. The only covenant there is with God in this modern day under the new, uh, from the time Jesus has been raised from the dead. The only covenant there is with God is through Jesus. Some people will say, oh, well, we have to support Israel because God will bless those that bless him, uh, bless Israel, and curse those that curse Israel. Isn't that in the Old Testament? Well, then the blessing and the cursing of God cannot be associated with an Old Testament promise. For example, if the church takes a stand and says Israel was wrong in this position, you're telling me that God's going to curse his people, the church, those that he's one with, because they take a stand, a moral stand against something that was wrong that Israel did? Really? Folks, it's not about Israel. It's about Jesus. Now, I'm not against Israel. I'm all for Israel. I think Israel has the right to wipe out everybody that's against them. And I'd be glad if they would just go ahead and do it. <laughs> I'd solve some of our problems as they're arising too. So don't get the wrong idea about this. But that doesn't mean everything Israel does is right. If Israel says they're going to give away the West Bank for some kind of peace treaty. Is that right? Not according to the Bible. Well, if the church stands up and says, no, we don't support that. You're telling me that because we have not stood with Israel on that, God's going to be against us? It's ridiculous. So let's keep things in the proper context. So here where the Bible is talking about the Jews, particularly, we're supposed to recognize that the law was to point them to Jesus and at that point turn loose of the law. It's not about Moses, it's about Jesus. That's the point that he's making. Now let's keep reading here. But after the verse 25 again, after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For, verse 26, you are all the children of God. How? Not by being sons of Abraham. But by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many as you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I know I got off track a little bit, but we're still talking about how did Jesus manifest the name of his father? How did Jesus glorify his father's name? Just by living. Notice if you've been baptized into Christ, that means been born again. You've put on Christ. Notice what Paul goes even a step further in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Better start in verse 14. 
Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? Notice he's calling the believers righteousness and the unbeliever unrighteousness. And what communion has light with darkness? He's calling the believer light, the unbeliever darkness. And what concord has Christ with Belial? He's calling the believer Christ and the unbeliever Belial, which is the name for the devil. Or what part he has he that believeth with an infidel? Believers versus infidels. Please notice that the Bible calls you Christ. Why? Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You're being born again made you in Christ. Remember Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. I pray, Father, that they would be one in us even as I am in you. Therefore, even as I am in you, he said. Therefore, that means you're as much in Christ and in God the Father as Jesus was in God the Father. Now, folks, that's what the new birth did. The new birth changed your spiritual nature. You're just as much born of God by the new birth by accepting Jesus as your Savior, your Lord and Savior. You're just as much born of God as Jesus was born of God when he was born of Mary's womb. We don't think in those terms because we think, well, no, Jesus was a physical birth and ours was just a spiritual birth. So we think somehow that doesn't work, that doesn't equate. But you're just as much born of God as Jesus is. As a matter of fact, the Bible says Jesus was the first one that was born again from the dead. If Jesus was spiritually dead and now he's spiritually alive, he had to be reborn. How'd that work? Same way it did for you. Jesus believed in the Father, believed in his word, believed in his plan, and acted on it, lived it out. You believed in God's word, God's plan, in Jesus, and acted it out. We're born again the same way. That's why the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. He's not talking about firstborn from physical death. He's talking about firstborn from spiritual death. You're just as much born of God as Jesus is. Well, if you're just as much born of God as Jesus is, why shouldn't we be able to do the same works that he did? uh, Let me turn to one last scripture and I I think I'll close with this. That's Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse... um, Well, better start in verse 12 to get the context. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Elect means saved, those who are in Christ. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against you, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. In other words, he's saying, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the way that you should live your lives. It's not a list of things like he has identified with the, uh, with the Galatians. But he's saying... Here's the way that you ought to live your life. Live your life in love. Live your life in mercy. Live your life in kindness. Live your life in forgiveness. Be long-suffering when it takes. And sometimes it will take long-suffering. You don't get your answers overnight. So live this way. 
Then he goes further and says in, in verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. In other words, here's the way that you're going to manifest the life of God in your existence is through love. Jesus said, the new commandment I give you is that you love one another. It's all consistent. Verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your heart. Notice that happens only when you let it. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are also called in one body and be ye thankful. So he's putting all these things together. He's saying, by the way, make sure to live in peace. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't start stuff. Don't get in other people's stuff. And be thankful. Live a rejoicing and a grateful life. Because that's what you're called to do. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts. Notice this is attached to being thankful or rejoicing. Here's how you rejoice. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words. Thank God for his word. You want to live a life of gratitude. Start thanking him for his word. So many times people are trying to count their blessings in life and they don't find the blessings that they want to see and so they get down in the mouth about it. Well, thank God for the blessings that the Word says are yours. Then you'll see them become yours. Verse 17. Here's how he wraps this up. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father by him. Please notice that he wraps this up in say, saying, if you're going to live the right kind of life, live your life in the name of Jesus. Notice he does not say, use the name of Jesus. He says, live in the name of Jesus. You know how Jesus manifested his father to the, the name of his father to his disciples? He lived in his father's name. The name of Jesus is not intended to be some magical charm that gets God's attention. It's supposed to be that which we recognize we are in. You can't be baptized into Christ without being baptized in the name of Christ. You can't put on Christ without putting on his name. When do, I intended to do that. We ran out of time, but I intend. Maybe we'll do it next time. John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Jesus speaks in every chapter. He speaks several times about asking in his name. Whatsoever you ask in my name. He's, calling about whatever, he's talking about whatever you put a demand on in my name, I'll do it. Now, we break it down. We break it down into doing the works of Jesus in John chapter 14. We break it down into prayer in John chapter 16. So we talk about those two things. Doing the work of Jesus, the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I'll honor my name when you do the works that I did here on the earth. I'll honor my name or the Father will honor my name when you pray. But it's the same word, ask. There's no difference in the use of the name of Jesus, whether you're using it for somebody else or yourself in prayer. No difference whatsoever. Now, how is that possible? How is that possible? Because not everybody has the same anointing to set other people free. Brother Haken had a special anointing to, the, to minister healing to the sick. I wish I had that. But no matter how much I try to work myself into it, I don't have it. Finally, you get to the place where the Bible says a man that boasts of a false gift is like a cloud without rain. There's a lot of people out there trying to have something that other people had. Well, you only have what God gives you. And I haven't found any way to get something that you want just because you want it when it comes to ministry. I'm stuck with what I've got. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not displeased with what I've got. 
But I can't make myself some other ministry office. I can't call myself to another ministry office. I can't look around the, the, the world and say, well, people like prophets better than pastors, so I want to be a prophet. Even if I announced that I was a prophet, that doesn't make me one. Brother Hagin used to say, you can put any label you want to on an empty can and it won't fill the can. Looks to me like that's what some people are, are empty cans. Trying to live up to some label that's not theirs. So how is that possible? How is it possible that the name of Jesus works the same way in setting people free and and in my own prayer life? Because I know the name of Jesus works in my prayer life. I can't show you a whole lot of miracles that we've had because of something that I did because of some anointing that was on me throughout the, the history of the church. But I can show you tons of miracles that I've gotten in my own prayer life. But Jesus said it works the same both ways. How is that possible? How is it possible? But there's only one way for it to be possible. And that is to recognize that the name of Jesus is who we are in the world. When Paul called the Corinthians Christ and the unbelievers infidels, what he's saying is you are Jesus manifested in the earth. Now that may not be a pleasant thought for you. Because you may not think you live up to it well enough to honor the name of Jesus. But the fact is you are the name of Jesus in the earth. Good or bad. As far as your lifestyle is concerned. You are the name of Jesus in the earth. We see Jesus standing before Lazarus tomb. And he simply said father I thank you that you hear me. And you always hear me. I didn't say this to make you know that I know that you hear me. I said it for the people that are standing by. In other words, Jesus understood his relationship with the Father, which is what the Jews wanted to kill him for. I and my Father are one. My Father worketh and I work. Every time he said that and he was around the Jews, the Jews took up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, what do you want to kill me for? Which good work have I done among you that you're trying to kill me for? No, it's not because you've done any good works. It's because you've made yourself equal with the Father. How did he make himself equal with the Father? By saying my Father and I are one. Well, guess what? The Father and you are one. Jesus and you are one. Not if you do something well enough. Are you one with the Father or one with Jesus? You are one because you are in Christ. You can't be in Christ and not be one with him. The thing that God's dealing with me about where the name of Jesus is concerned is to change my attitude about who I am. And I'm wanting to study and find out who Jesus is. I'm wanting to study and find out the power in the name. And, and, and boy, we could tell stories. And I like to read stories about the use of the name of Jesus and how it rocked the world. And Jesus did amazing things. He shocked his disciples. No question about that. Well, we should be doing amazing things too, shouldn't we? If we're one with the Father like Jesus was one with the Father. And Jesus said the reason he did amazing things was because he's one with the Father. We ought to be doing amazing things. But why? What was the difference in Jesus and us? Jesus said we'd do the same works that he did. Didn't he? He even said we'd do greater works than he did. Because he was going to the Father. So what's the deal? The deal is we don't recognize what one with the Father means. The deal is we don't recognize what one with Christ means. Let me, I, I told you one last scripture. One, one last scripture. Look with me over to John chapter 14. We referred to it a couple of times. Let me show it to you.
John chapter 14. Maybe we ought to start reading in, uh, well, let me back up to verse 8. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. This is at the last supper, the last night Jesus had with his disciples. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now, folks, if Jesus is our example, we ought to grow to the place. I understand nobody starts there. But we ought to grow to the place where we can say, He that has seen me has seen Jesus. Now, that seems sacrilegious to us. But shouldn't we ask the question, why does this seem sacrilegious to us? Does it seem sacrilegious to us because we're taking too much on ourselves? Or does it seem sacrilegious to us because we're not really ready to accept mentally that we're one with Jesus? Now, if we're holding on to secret sin, if there's stuff that we know that we're doing wrong, but we're going to keep doing it wrong and, and, and that kind of stuff, no matter that, that the Lord's dealing with us to repent and stuff like that, then I understand somebody's objection to that. I understand somebody saying, you know, I don't want people looking at me and thinking they're looking at Jesus. It's like the basketball player some years ago that said, I'm not a role model. Well, he was. He was just a bad one. You don't decide you're not a role model. That was just an excuse for that person to want to do or keep doing the things that he wanted to do and things that he didn't want or knew that kids shouldn't follow him into doing. But kids followed him into doing. You don't decide you're not a role model. You can't decide you're not in Christ. If you've been born again, you can't set heaven in your future and say, well, until then I'm going to take care of things on my own and not be part of Christ. You are. Whether you do it honorably or not, you are showing Jesus in the earth. Maybe you're one of those that the the world looks at and says, well, I don't understand this thing about Christians. They live just the way we do. Well, not because we're supposed to. So I understand the hesitation. But the reality is we should be able to say. We should be growing to the point where we can say, he that has seen me has seen Jesus. Because we're in him just as much as he was in the Father. And that's the context that Jesus is talking about. Believest thou not, verse verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. What's he doing? He's manifesting the Father to his disciples. He was saying, these words that, that amaze you, these words that thrill you, I'm not coming up with these words. I'm speaking the things that the Father has given me to tell you. Why does he tell them that? Why does he keep saying the things about his father? Because he's trying to point them to him. Not himself, but to the father. He's trying to point his disciples to the father. So what are we supposed to do? Well, if we follow Jesus' example, we're supposed to live in the name of Jesus. Not use the name of Jesus. We're supposed to live in the name of Jesus. Which means that there will be times where we will use it. But it's because we're living it. We're living in the name of Jesus. You should work in the name of Jesus. You should bathe in the name of Jesus. You should eat in the name of Jesus. In other words, Jesus should be so conscious, a part of your consciousness. You should be so focused in being one with Christ that he affects anything and everything you do. There's not a door you walk through that you leave Jesus outside and you go in on your own. Now, if we live that way, I wonder if it would affect the way that we operate it. I wonder if it would affect the power of God and manifest in our lives. 
Every, every man of God that I've ever read after that's been used of God in a great way and miracles and stuff like that, they always talk about consecration. Always. It's the one thing John Lake talked about. He talked about the consecration. Well, Wigglesworth did too, but, but Lake even to a greater degree. He talks about the consecration that he made, the, the commitments that he made to God. I mean, this guy, he counted everything as the result of the consecration he made to God. The more he gave himself to God, the more he found the power of God flowing through him. Same thing for Wigglesworth. Must have had something to do with it. So he's manifesting the Father's name. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the very work's sake. So verse 10, he's talking about the words come from the Father. He's talking about in verse 11 that the works come from the Father. And notice that the works follow or confirm the words. That's what the Bible says about Jesus after he was raised from the dead and worked with the church. The Lord went with them confirming the word with signs following. The more we honor the word in our lives, the more signs following we'll have. The more accompanying signs will be. Verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, that has to be on his name. You can't believe on Jesus and not believe in his name. In fact, if you believe on Jesus to become saved, to be born again, that's the same thing as Paul just talked about in, uh, what was it, Galatians 3. Being baptized into Christ and putting on Christ. So he that believeth on me or in my name. Those would be interchangeable terms. The works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my father. Notice he's talking about a different set of rules. He's talking about different results. He's talking about a different measure. Because of his resurrection. Why? Because he now has greater glory than he had when he was here on the earth. He now has greater glory than he had before he came to the earth. He has a name that's above every name. It implies that there was a name that was reserved in heaven that nobody had access to that God was waiting on for Jesus to be raised from the dead so he could confer it on him. It implies that from the beginning, ever before there was the idea of time, that God reserved a name that he was going to give his son upon his resurrection from spiritual death. And now he has. And now that name is what's been given to us. He that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater the works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my father. Why didn't Jesus qualify that? Why didn't Jesus say greater works than these shall he do if he's really spiritual enough? Or if he walks holy enough? Or if he's pleasing enough to God or something. Why didn't he put some kind of qualification on that? We do. We say if we see somebody doing works and signs and wonders and miracles and stuff like that, we say, oh, wow, he's really got something from God. Well, what does he have that you don't have? Is he more in Christ than you are? It's always amazed me how people treat People that do miracles and have miracles and, and signs and stuff like that going on in their ministry. It's amazed me how people idolize them. They treat them like rock stars. Like they've got something to do with it. They can't help it. They didn't make it happen. In many cases, they can't stop it from happening. 
A.A. Allen would go out and get drunk and then have revivals at night. Get released from jail just in time to get to the meeting and have healing miracles like you would not believe. It sure wasn't his right living that caused it to happen. He'd tell the stories would be out about his arrest and stuff like that. And he'd stand up publicly in his meetings and say, it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. And then have miracles. Caused a lot of people to, to scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, we don't understand. Is this God or not? Because how can you stand there and lie? How can you go out and get drunk and, and disturb the peace and do all the stuff that he's doing, get thrown in jail, lie about it, and then have miracles and people come to God? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Unless you realize that it's not him that's doing it, it was the power of God working through him. Because whether he's living right or not, the call of God was still on his life. The call of God is without repentance. But you see somebody that has works, signs and wonders and miracles, stuff like that. Everybody will flock to him and think everything they say is right. Everything they do must be God anointed. Wow, let's be just like them. Jesus said you judge them by the fruit, not by the miracles. Fruit means lie. So Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me. Could we say it this way? He that lives in my name. Wouldn't that be part of it too? He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask means to call for or require. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. How can he make that statement? How does he know what you're going to ask? Does that not put him on the line for something that he might not want to follow through with? How could he possibly say that? Because believing on him means living in his name. And if you're living in his name... And what you call for or require is going to be in line with the character and the nature of God. It's going to be in line with his plan and his purpose. Might be big. Might be wonderful. Might even bring great blessing to you personally. But still going to be in line with his word. Now I wish, to, I, wish I had a better description than the ones that I use. Whatever you call for or require. Or place a demand on. Because... Um, Somehow or another, there's just something on the inside of me that says that does not really ex- uh, uh, exemplify or describe what, uh, what Jesus is trying to get across. So I thought about, well, maybe it's need. Maybe Jesus is saying, whatever you need, I'll give you. But it's not the word need. Because he'll do more than you need. Need wouldn't even scratch the surface of what the power of God will do in the life of the believer. He says, whatever you call for or require. Now, there's no way that I can think this through, and, and please don't be limited by my small thinking. But there's no way that I can think this through where I don't come up with um, well, how do I say this? There's no way in thinking this through, call for or require, that I don't come up with the idea, the understanding that I've got something to do with it. It's not just God pulling strings in heaven and, and, and whatever will be, will be. Whatever you call for or require, that's what I'll do, Jesus said. He said the same thing in prayer. He said, whatever you call for or require. 
in my name. That's what the Father will do it in my name. So he says the name of Jesus moves not only him, Jesus, but it moves the Father on your behalf. Why? Because you're one with Jesus, one with the Father. The name of Jesus works the same way. But again, Jesus didn't manifest the name of the Father by going around saying, in the name of the Father, be healed. In the name of the Father, rise from the dead. In the name of the Father, multiply loaves and fishes. He never used the name of his Father except telling people that's where the power comes from. He knew the power was resident in him. And I think that's the missing point. I think that's the missing element for most of the church. We don't realize that the power is there in us because we're one with him. Remember Jesus, I will close with this. You remember Jesus said, uh, talking to the disciples, uh, talking to the 70 in Luke chapter 10. They came back and they said, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you authority. Luke ten seventeen. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Remember that? Remember the next thing he said? He said, notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the devils are subject unto you but that your names are written down in heaven. In other words, I'm coming to the place. And it's, it's, it's certainly the way the Lord's dealing with me right now. I, I don't know if it's going to be this way with you or not, but I'm coming to the place where I'm rejoicing more about living in the name of Jesus than I am doing any kind of works. And I'm finding that I'm having greater works when I put it first like that. I'm finding that when I focus on the name of Jesus being a part of who I am because I'm in Christ, then I have a greater understanding and I have a greater confidence in the power of God to work in any and every situation. If we could see this the way the devil sees it, remember Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. That means the devil knows he's stripped of power. Now, whether you do or not, whether a believer does or not, the devil does. It was done openly. Which means you can know by accepting the truth of the word. But the devil knows he's stripped of power. He knows he's powerless against you. Now why is he powerless against you? Because you're some great person of faith? No, because you're in Christ. He's not powerless against the world. But he's powerless against those that are in Christ. Now, he tries to deceive you on that. He tries to trick you. He tries to make you think that he's still in control. He's still the big bad boogie bear and all this kind of stuff. And what he says goes in your life and no matter what you want and so forth. But he knows that he's stripped of power for the, against those that are in Christ Jesus. Let me leave you with this. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. Jesus talked about his name having power. But I want you to focus on the fact that you are in Christ Jesus. Let the power take care of itself. Because the more you focus on being in Christ, the more conscious you'll be of the power and the more you'll see the power flow. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for that our names are written down in heaven. Oh, Father, what a privilege to know that we're children of God. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed. Nobody looking around. If there's anyone here this morning. That you don't know that you're in Christ Jesus. You can't point to a specific moment in your life. Where you said yes. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. There is nothing more important in the universe for you. 
There's nothing that will bring you peace. There's nothing that will bring you from death to life. There's nothing other than the name of Jesus and accepting him and his sacrifice. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. If you're here this morning, you'd say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to ask you very simply just to raise your hand. Nobody's looking at you. I've got my eyes open. The ushers have their eyes open to help me see. But this is between you and God. Pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Yes, sir. Thank you. Are there others who will join our brother? Our soon to be our brother? Pray for me, Pastor Mike. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to be saved. All right, I have another invitation. Maybe you are saved, but maybe you've been doing like those that I talked about. Maybe there are parts of your life that you've been holding on to for yourself. You know it's wrong. Your heart's condemned you about it all along. But now you're ready to surrender once and for all. Not only am I saved, I really want Jesus to be the Lord of every part of my life. The Bible says if you'll confess your sin, then God's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteous actions. So if you're here this morning and say, Pastor Mike, I know I'm saved, but I need to make things right with God. I want to rededicate my life so that Jesus is Lord and Savior of every aspect, every part of my life, once and for all, forever. If that's your desire, we want to pray for you as well. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just lift your hand right now. And identify that that's your desire as well. Yes, sir. Thank you. Several. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. All right. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you lifted your hand on either of those invitations or you know you should have. You didn't, but you know you should have. I want you and only you to open your eyes and look up here at me. I want to talk to you for just a moment. I want to give you some instruction. We want to do what we said. We want to pray. But we want to pray in a way that we know is be most effective. The way we found is to not pray in this main auditorium, but to pray in a side room. It's a room just right off of the, the, uh, the main door out there. So I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to gather your belongings, whatever you came with. There's a gentleman over on this side that's got his hand raised. He's going to lead you to the prayer room. I'm going to ask you to make your way out from where you are. And join him. He'll show you where it is. If you came with someone. You want them to go with you. Just tap them on the shoulder. They'll be more than happy to go. I'm sure. But if you need. Help from God. In the manner that we described. I'm going to ask you to. To to get up from your seat. And make your way out to the front. Where the. The back of the auditorium. to, to, To you. The front to me. Where this gentleman has his hand raised. Go ahead and do that now, if you will, please. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these that are giving their hearts to you. Those that are committing their lives to you. We pray that this will be a new beginning from today forward. They'll never be the same. They'll know your power. They'll know your love. They'll know your mercy in a different and a greater way than they've ever known before. We thank you for honoring your word. 
Thank you, Jesus, as you said, whoever comes to you, you will in no wise or for no reason turn them away. Thank you, Lord, for making it so. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, let's all stand. Let me pray over you before we go. Father, quicken these things to our hearts. Cause us to realize what it really means to be in Christ, to be one with you through your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in the name of Jesus. Realize the power that's in that name. Realize the protection that's in that name. Realize the blessing that's in that name. A hedge that the the evil one cannot pierce through. A hedge around us that causes favor to be drawn to us like a magnet. Father, cause us to realize that that name of Jesus breaks all the power of the evil one. Not only in our lives, but in those who are willing to receive as well. Make this be a giant step forward, Lord, into us doing the works of Jesus in the earth. And let it be said of us, when we come to the end of our road or Jesus comes back for us, that he that saw us saw Jesus in us. For that's our desire, Father. We ask it in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great day.